need to think through this. There are very degrees of sin in the Bible. And I think this is important because so often we quote James or we quote Romans 3 and we say, well, sin is sin. And if you've grown up with that mentality, you need to say, I understand sin is sin. And if you have, as I said last week or two weeks ago, if you have a computer and there's a virus on it, well, then that computer hard drive or that system is it's infected. It doesn't matter how bad it is. It's not going to be sold or shouldn't be sold, at least to you, if it's infected. So we understand that if you're a windshield maker, manufacturer, if there's a small chip in the middle of the windshield, it's rejectable as much as if it were smashed and you dropped it in the corner of the warehouse. It doesn't matter how bad it is. If it's broken, it's broken. And so sin, as it would say in James, you can you know, keep all the laws you want and break one and you're guilty of the whole thing. What are you guilty of? You're guilty of not keeping the law. Keeping the law is what we need to do. We need to present God with a perfect human life. You didn't do that. You could be Stalin, you could be Hitler, Mussolini, you could be, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, you could be eating people and cannibalizing them and say, well, that's bad, and you're a sinner and in a category of not measuring up, or you could be someone who's very nice, but you slander your brother and you deceive people with your words, and either way, the Bible says you're in a category of not measuring up to God's standard. All that's true, but when we start thinking about excessive punishment, we need to think about the reality of the differentiation of sin in the Bible. So I just want to start with that concept. It's going to carry into where we're headed. Exodus 22.5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose, his beast loose, and it feeds in another man's field, he must make restitution from the best of his own field and from his own vineyard. So I'm negligent in letting my ox out into your field and he eats what you have grown. I'm supposed to now bring the best of my field and make restitution to you. Okay, so that's negligence. It's not a very nice thing for me to be is negligent about your stuff and allowing my ox or whatever it might be, my goats, to eat your field. On the other hand, Leviticus chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 says, if I've sinned and realized my guilt, I'm going to restore what I took. Maybe I'm a robber. I stole from you. I went into your field at night and I stole your stuff. Or I got it by oppression or some kind of, uh, of extortion the deposit that was committed to me or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he'd sworn falsely, I lied about it to get it from you. Well, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him who to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. So now it's not just making restitution with good stuff from what I've got. It's now adding 20% to it. Now I have to give more back. Why? Because it's not just how I stole your stuff. Now I did it with an intention because I did something that was morally worse than just letting my animal out. The variations in degrees of sin is an important thing to start discussing with people and recognizing that our law code, it follows this pattern. There's a penal code. There's a code that shows what the punishment should be for the crimes that are committed. And to think about the variation of that is a very important thing. And for us to go in our minds to places like Romans 3 and say all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, or we think about uh, James saying if you broke one, you're, you're guilty of it all, or you start talking about Jesus saying, you know, if you look at a woman, it's like committing adultery with her. If you look at her lustfully, uh, or if you say in your own heart, raka, that Aramaic term for you, you're a knucklehead. If you say that, it's as guilty as if you have killed them, right? Well, I, I, I put words in Christ's mouth. He didn't say that. He says you're liable to the judgment. 
right, to the Sanhedrin. You could go before the council and be found guilty. Why? He's not saying that they're all equal. They're not equal, and there's not an equal penalty for all of those. But what he is saying is that it's wrong and on the same scale. You've heard it said, as long as I don't do that, I can do some of these things on the same street, as long as I don't go all the way down to the end of the cul-de-sac. And what he's saying is, no, you can't do that. But there are differentiations. And all I'm saying is those three proof texts in James, in Matthew, and in Romans cannot be used to say all sin is the same. All sin is not the same. And all sin is not responded to the same in our law code, and it's not responded to in the same way in the law code of the Old Testament or even the punishments that are meted out in the discipline of the church in the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 19 is another example of this. Verse 4. This, the cities of refuge that he just explained, which are six cities, three on the east side and three on the west side of the Jordan River where you could run if you had killed someone, said is the provision for the manslayer, for the one who's committed manslaughter, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, well, then you can run there to the city of refuge. It's like you being convicted of manslaughter. Well, you have to be in prison now in one of the cities of refuge. And if you escape from there or you get out of there, you try to go back to your life as normal, then you could be subject to being executed. So you have to stay there. That's a, that's a loss of your freedom for manslaughter. But Numbers chapter 35 verses 19 through 21 said, well, let's say you pushed someone out of hatred or you hurled something at him because you were angry or you lied in wait for him so that he died or an enemy struck him down with his hand so that he died and then, he's, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him and it doesn't matter where he meets him. You can't run to the city of refuge. Just like we would say murder in the first degree, at least in the olden days, it used to be that you could be executed for that because God says if you slay the blood of a man you should by man have your blood spilt and you should be executed matter of fact the Bible says the land is polluted until that blood is shed by the judicial authorities of a land and that's still a law that's on the books from the Noahic covenant that is what God expects from a civil society and the ground is going to cry out from the blood of the innocent who've been killed, at least innocent in judicial sense in a society, until the blood of the murderer is killed. But nevertheless, the point is, still there are things, even with special circumstances, you can be convicted and go on death row in California. But if you get killed, if you kill someone through negligence or in something that would be deemed manslaughter, well, you might go to prison for that. But you're not going to have the same penalty meted out. And the Bible, we get all these things from the Bible. Matter of fact, the idea of malice aforethought, that's a phrase that comes right out of the King James Bible from the law code that reminds us that there are degrees of sin. And so that's going to set us up for where we're going in the apologetic for the excessiveness of sin. The first thing that you need to realize after you think about the varied nature of punishments in the Bible in terms of law code, which is the basis for civil law code. There are three uses of the law. A little sidebar here for a second. You know the law is to be used in three ways. One way is to lead me to my need for the gospel. In other words, I look at the law of the Bible and I recognize I need grace. Just like David saw adultery is a sin and there's punishments for that, that should lead me to repentance. And that repentance is something that leads me to want God's grace and to cry out for his mercy. That's the first use of the law. Second use of the law, and this is the way theologians have liked to divide them up, is a way for us to think about the way the law provides a template for societal justice, which is what I'm trying to talk about here. That's the idea, the idea of the concept 
of the law being something that is supposed to make civil society civil by having a variation of punishments for varied degrees of sin. Third use of the law is for us to know what God's sanctifying law should be. In other words, the things that he approves of. And if he doesn't want us to muzzle the ox while he's threshing, as Paul says, that's so you can learn that the worker is worthy of his wages. And in that context, he applies it to pastors ought to be paid a living wage so that they are serving you spiritually and studying and shepherding and guiding and counseling and administrating in the church and they ought to be paid. The idea, though, is that the law code is used in those three distinct ways. For us to govern, number three, our sanctification. Number two, to see the varied judicial penalties for sin in society. And we have picked those phrases right out of the English Bible to set up our society here in America, which is changing quickly. And then the first use, of course, is the one we like to use in evangelism when we talk about the fact that the law exposes our need for grace. Three uses of the law. I'm talking about the second one here, which is going to lead me to an ultimate sense of why hell seems like such a big deal. Well, one reason it's a big deal is because we're sinning against God. We understand this. God is going to be equitable in that justice that he meets out, in part because as someone is evaluated in the decisions that they make, there's going to be varied sentences. That's what the Bible teaches, and most people I find who grow up in church never even think about this. They never hear about it, and it's one of the reasons a lot of people jump ship on even believing in the doctrine of hell, which is an amazing turn of events. I guess the cults have always wanted to shy away from the reality of judgment. I mean, the judgment that Jesus said, think about it. He said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. And after that, there's nothing he can do. Fear the one who can, after he kills the body, can toss your soul into hell. These are the kinds of things that Jesus said. Next phrase, yes, I tell you, fear him. That's the reality of Jesus' teaching. You can't find the modern cool hip pastors or the theologians that are so thoughtful high up in the ivory towers that they're writing their commentaries in anymore holding to the doctrines of Christ. And as some have rightly said, you think your morality is higher than Christ's morality. You think your sense of justice is better than God's sense of justice. What Jesus is clearly articulated, which of course I quoted all the time and every pastor who knows anything about the New Testament does, and that is that Jesus talked more about the severity of hell than he ever talked about the blessedness of heaven. So it's important for us to realize this should never be an abandoned doctrine, even just because it's distasteful. It's distasteful, I'll agree with that. But it's a big deal because God is a just God, my sin is a big deal to him, I'm sinning against him, that makes it even a bigger deal. The things that I've done, some have been small on the scale of retribution. Some have been big on the scale of retribution. And then when I go and stand before him, he's going to judge me based on that, according to that, in keeping with that, with equity as it relates to that. 